Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. This episode is sponsored by ScriptRunner. ScriptRunner is a great solution to centrally manage PowerShell scripts and standardize and automate IT tasks via graphical user interface for help desk or end users. Check that out on scriptrunner.com. I'm Tobias. I'm back with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. I've been doing my meetings that I still have before the summer vacation starts. I've been doing my meetings in the car and in parking lots lately here in Helsinki. The reason for this is that my 12-year-old, he has had a few very busy weeks with his basketball stuff. So school is out. Now he has like an extra fitness training, the technique camps, all sorts of things. And I've been driving him around the city because usually these special training things, they are about 90 minutes each. And you could have one at nine in the morning, the second one at noon. So so you kind of have to lose a couple of hours in between. So I often do a meeting or two while he's doing his training thing. And today it was very sunny. So I parked the car, the the kid went to the, the practice. I went outside to take a meeting with my phone using my earbuds. Um, the, the, the same ones I think I mentioned that went through the washing machine a couple of weeks ago. And while I was doing the meeting, somebody walked, walked up to me and, and started talking to me, but I have noise cancelling on, so I, I, I didn't realize he was talking to me. So I took one earbud off and asked him, can I, can I help him? And he said, excuse me, have you seen the blue perch here? And it, it took me a second to realize it's a specific type of bird. And, and before I could say anything, I was, I was just flabbergasted. He asked to confirm that, am I really the resident local ornithologist? I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I'm not local. I don't live here. I live elsewhere. And he apologized. But now I'm thinking, am I wearing something that makes me look like the local ornithologist and specialist in, in birds? That's, that's pretty funny. Uh, we have a lot of those here. Because by the sea, there's a lot of different types of, uh, of birds that people come to watch. And, you know, similar stories, we have people coming from all over the world to see this specific bird that will most likely be in this area around this time. Or someone spotted it halfway across the country and followed the bird you know, <laughs> down south to where I live and then made a note in, you know, whatever Facebook groups or whatever they're part of. And then, you know, 20, 30 people come down. And, and they meet up and they try to find the bird and then they move on. <laughs> it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. I got a lot of insights from a friend who is a ornithologist and you know, there's a lot of science in it and, and a lot of things you need to know, but uh, still funny question. And, and no, you don't look like the typical ornithologist because I, I couldn't determine what that you know, looks like anyway. So anyway, for, for me, I've not been up to that much since we spoke last time here. I did take a swim in the sea for the first time this year, and that was cold, pretty cold, but also a very great and refreshing experience. So hopefully now we can take the afternoons and evening swims with the family during the summer, kind of like a, you know ending the workday or ending the daycare routine, uh, and then just like in the past, which we used to do. Hopefully, I can also do a, a morning dip sometimes um, because that really wakes you up. But at the same time, it's it's pretty cold right now. I think it's 16, 15, 16 degrees in the water Celsius. So it's it's not super nice, but it will wake you up. So if if you do have a problem that you're sleeping too much or that you're tired in the morning, welcome. 
to my area and, and take a dip in the sea. Uh, I'm sure you'll find colder places. But it's pretty nice to find this kind of summer routine. And I welcome this with the entire family. We can go, we can have a, a swim together either in the morning because the kid, the, the smallest one wakes up at 5 a.m. still. So it's pretty rough. I am a, a bit exhausted at the moment because I take both kids during the night and then I go up at 4.45, 5 a.m., something like this when the kid wakes up. And then I go for my first walk with a stroller and well, now we can also go with the morning swim. So hopefully I will wake up uh, when I do that next time. Sounds, sounds like fun. Did I mention that I woke up at seven this morning and the kid did not wake me up during the night? You'll get there <laughs> eventually. <laughs> Very nice. Alrighty. So, so today um, we take a look at the Power Platform API and Azure AD service principles. Um, the thinking for this episode, when we were planning and sort of debating on the topics and, 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 and the content, was, was that I really wanted to have a look at the new Power Platform API. It's interesting. It's in preview now. But it doesn't really relate to Azure that much. Besides, you need Azure AD to access and authenticate with this new Power Platform API. So that got us thinking that perhaps we talk, talk, talk about the concept a little bit on, on how do you secure the API first with Azure AD. And, and then when we're done with those, uh, we move on to the Power Platform API. We have a look at that. And then, then we have a look at the use cases. And, and then we wrap up this whole picture. Uh, Toby, I know you've been working a lot with APIs. I know that you've been exposed to plenty of things in, in Azure AD. But if I was a customer and I would approach you, imagine that you're a consultant today, and I would say, yeah, I, I really need to access this API my developers built, but it requires some sort of authentication. So, so what do I need to do on, on, a, on a case like this? Of course, the yeah, I did spend a considerable time building APIs and, and building different services that work with the APIs in Azure as well and, and the various SDKs. If someone came and said, well, we, we built a custom API and needs to connect and retrieve data from X or Y, Z from a service in, in Azure. So if, if the scope here, because this, what we're talking about is, is something running on the Microsoft stack, if we're talking about something running in Azure or that is accessible from the APIs in Azure, then of course you need to authenticate to that API somehow. And we don't really just use a, a how do you call it back in the day, you had a an API key for simple APIs, and you could just pass it as a query string or, or pass it in as a parameter uh, or like an API key for, for your specific account or a global one, which we see a lot. What we see today is a lot of things are moving towards authentication, so identity. So my, my first question would be, do we have an identity for that API or can you create an identity for that API? And in my mind, this would be a service principle or a managed identity tied to the actual service so imagine you have uh, you have something set up that is running inside of an Azure function. Then you can connect uh, and manage identity to the Azure function and then grant that function permissions to the APIs in Azure or in Microsoft 365, whatever you need uh, as appropriate. And then you can execute the code using that identity. So I, I would say that the ways you have before you, or at least that's where I would start is 
you take a look at service principles or AAD apps, you can create your own. You can either do that in the portal or you can use the CLI or Azure PowerShell or any other mechanism. You can also do it programmatically using C Sharp or Node.js or whatever you want. Then either you create an app, an Azure AD app, uh, or you create a, a managed identity that you then connect to and grant uh, authorization to the resources or the APIs that you want them to access. Back in the day, you could do this in many other ways, of course, and authenticating. But that's probably how I would do it today. And if I had a choice and if I could impact that choice, I would say serverless, passwordless, as much as you can. And, and that's also, that means secretless in the ways that you don't set up an AD app and then use client ID in secret. Use an identity. If you can use an identity, then you can enforce that only this identity can access that API. And then you have fewer things to, to really care about as opposed to a client ID in secret, which anyone with that client ID in secret can execute with full control of the scope of the you know, granted permission for that app. So that was perhaps a long answer to a short question, but you know, my train of thought would start here. Set up something within the scope of the tenant. If it's a single tenant, if it's a multi-tenant, then of course you can set it up in whatever tenant that's going to host the API and then configure the permissions and then look if you can use managed identities uh, or some type of identity tied to that. If not, then set up an AAD app or a service principle, yeah, create a certificate or a client ID, client secret, yeah, whatever approach will work you know, for your scenario. And that will, of course, differ. And I think we can spend probably a full episode just talking about authenticating and, and authorizing to different APIs. But super, super long answer to a very short question. That, that's where I would start. I, I know in the future you would, you would do well as a consultant because a customer would ask, do we do X or Y? And you get like a five-minute answer with all possible <laughs> options. And that's the value. Okay, uh, so, so first, in order to, to access an API that might be secured, and it should be secured, of course, uh, we need the app registration in Azure AD. So I often, if I'm testing out things, I just use Azure Portal, go to Azure AD, go to app registration, add the registration, and, and type in, in the values that I need. And this, this gives me the, the app ID or the client ID, and I can also create a secret or a certificate and also define the scopes, meaning what sort of permissions I'm perhaps, perhaps delegating for anybody who uses the, the app, meaning perhaps that the app is then connecting with the API, or at least those, those privileges would be used for the API. So you mentioned service principles here, and, and for the Power Platform API and, and for quite a bit of other services, when you create the service principle, you're essentially creating the app registration and, and granting that some sort of permissions that you can later use. The managed identity, of course, a little bit more modern approach in the sense, but not every service, every asset has support for that. The same applies here for the Power Platform API. It has support for the service principle. It does not have support for the managed identity. There's also a third type of, of, of a service principle called the legacy. That's from the old times, and, and I, I hope to keep those in the old times. Um, so, so what do you manage uh, if somebody's listening on this and thinking, well, I'm not sure if we have service principles. 
what what do you use to check what service principles do we have? So you can go to the endless list that you will find if you go to at the Azure portal, uh, Azure AD, and then go to the enterprise applications. If you expand that blade, you will see all the service principles that you have, and that can be a lot. Of course, it depends on your organization and, and you know the size of that, and of course, the scope of what you can access and what you can actually see there. As a global admin in, in my previous role, where we both built and consumed you know, a, a great deal of different apps, the list could be long. So that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is, of course, using the Azure CLI that I use a lot. You can list all the service principles. You can group or filter or only show specific types, things like that, make queries. Uh, but the easiest thing to really visualize what you have is go to the Azure portal and go to the enterprise applications, take a look there, uh, at least as a starting point to start you know, figuring out what you have. I, I found it can sometimes be confusing. You have the app registrations, but then you have the enterprise apps and you sort of go, well, I'm creating the Power Platform API definition in app registration. And to me, it's an enterprise application. Why do I have two different views? And I've just approached this dilemma back in the day in, in, in the sense that whatever I create, I create an registration. And later, if I want to verify the service principles or tweak with some of the settings, I can do that through the enterprise application. So it's, it's a little bit a different use case. When do you go to enterprise applications and when do you go to app registration? Okay, I, I think we're fairly clear now what we need in terms of Azure AD to access the Power Platform API and similar APIs as well. So, so let's talk a bit about the Power Platform API then. So I've, I've spent a couple of hours on this just to, to try my, my, my scripts and just to try the endpoint really to see what I can get out from it. So this is in preview and it's quite limited. And I was not expecting it to be so limited for now, but I, I hope that in the in the future this will be more capable than what it is right now when we're recording this. So this API, yep. just for my understanding, this is the one like the power uh, power platform API where you can get stuff about applications and stuff about licensing. That's the one. That's or the one. So so there's two APIs. There's Power Platform API Preview, that's the one we are talking about today. And then there's the Power Platform API Legacy. And that's the, the very messy one because it's sort of, when you start using that one, you sort of hop away from the unified Power Platform platform and you, you go more to sort of a dynamic CRM dataverse, all, 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 all those sort of uh, backend systems that, that ideally you're not that interested in. You're interested in what do we have in Power Platform? What licenses do we have? We need to install something. And the new API seems like it, it tries to fix plenty of the, of the messiness you find in the legacy API. I've used the legacy API a couple of times, but that was some time ago. So I'm, I've sort of effectively forgotten everything about this. But the new API, it's it's much more straightforward in how to use this. Okay, so, so the first thing is we need to provision access to the API. So you go to Azure AD, you create a new 
new application. You do the application registration. Uh, you give it a nice name. Nothing else is needed. But once you've created that one, you go to the, um, the app settings. And in the properties, you have a button for enabling public client. You have to set this to yes. And the reason for this is that this setting enables the JSON web token. We, we talked about this uh, briefly when we had Andrew Connell as a guest. I, I remember he mentioned this a couple of times. And this is used for interactive applications. So, so if your solution makes operations on behalf of a user, which essentially we are planning on doing, this has to be enabled. And then you need to grant the permissions. And the permission is access the Power Apps Service API. It has nothing to do in terms of Power Platform in the name. Again, we're sort of looking at Power Apps, which is part of Power Platform. Uh, but the last bit is probably interesting. You need to create the client secret because default, uh, by default, that's not created for you. So, so Toby, when you are configuring something like this and you go to create a client secret, now you can define the expiration for the client secret. I think the default is six months, but what do you typically do? Do you, do you set this to never expire or something else? Do you want the consultant to answer again? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> so, so this, of course, depends. Um, I've spent, again, a considerable time setting up different permissions, managing permissions, um, creating secrets, you know, uh, to the end of my days, I've been creating secrets. And um, there's a couple of things here. Um, one is, of course, what type of app is it? What type of principle is it? And what is the scope? Is this in production? Does it have access to a real tenant? Or is it just dev? If it's in dev and you, and you have nothing in the dev tenant, set it to never. That's okay. Uh, you know, someone working in security, which I've done a lot myself, would say this is not okay. You should, of course, expire it within three months or six months. And sure, ideally, you should do that. But if you're building a proof of concept and you know you will delete this app in three days, I don't care. Uh, or if it's something that grants read access to something very limited, I also don't care if I set this to never or in two years or one year. As with everything, there's always a what if. And again, back to if this is in production or any type of environment where you have some real data and, and real PII and, and real customer data or your own data that you don't want to leak in any form or any way, regardless where that data is, then you should, of course, always think security first. But that also ties into, can you do this automatically then? So if you set this to six months, can you rotate the secret? Can your app handle that? Can your automation handle that? Can your team handle that? Who is doing the secret refresh? So, so it doesn't just expire, then all of a sudden you have an application that doesn't work because that does happen in production a lot. So I've spent a, a lot of time talking with customers and, and companies where you know, something doesn't work. That's usually the, the tagline. Can you take a look for us? Because something doesn't work. We're not quite sure what. We, we just, something doesn't work, right? And then you start troubleshooting and you find, you know, more often than not, you find that, something expired, either in a client secret or a certificate might have expired on an AED app, but they have been relying on that AED app for two years. Because when they created it, the default was set to expire in two years, and then they forgot about it, and then that happens. 
So again, the, the long answer where it definitely depends. Think about the full cycle, not just, of course, for security, you should have a shorter expiration. But in reality, how will you then keep track of that? How will you ensure to stay on top of expiring certificates? How will you rotate them? Will you have the process for that or will someone do it manually? Do you have hundreds of things to check every day uh, or hundreds of service principles to check secrets for every day, every month, or is it 10,000, right? Because that also matters. So the, and the, and the short question is short answer to the question is of course, think about security first. And if you can uh, use a shorter expiration, because that will kind of force you to cycle the secret, which is good. Most of the cases where you can really avoid that something goes into the wild. If, for whatever reason, you don't save them into a key vault. And if for whatever reason, you don't use secure transfer when you actually get the get the secret and, and you use the REST APIs, if for whatever reason, your application is leaking that secret or whatever, maybe you saved it into Notepad on your desktop, doesn't matter. You know, secrets may end up in the wild and the sooner you can cycle them, the better. So again, a long answer to a short question, but it does depend course, on the situation, on the company, on the projects, on a lot of factors, probably a lot of things I didn't think about right now. But that, that's, again, how I would start. Think about the bigger picture. Where do we need to go in the future? Is it production? Is it not? Is it for only for dev? And if it's only a dev tenant with only fake data, one of those you get pre-provisioned from Microsoft, I don't care. It's okay. Because I will just use it for this one thing and try it out. And then I'm okay. For anything else, Think about it twice. I, I think the default now is six months and it, it feels awfully short. I'm testing something. This might evolve into something in the future, but six months, it's, it's, it's too fast for me. So I often go for one year. If I'm sort of feeling brave, I'll, I'll go for two years. That's one of the challenges I feel in Azure. You have all sorts of secrets and tokens that expire but it seems there's nothing sort of built in to alert you that, well, two weeks from now, this is about to expire. Perhaps you want to do something about this. So what I see with, with customers is that they use something like Microsoft 365 Planner to just add a task with expiration and saying, well, we need to react to this in two years and let's see who will react then. Alrighty. So now what we have in order to access the Power Platform API, we have the app registration, the public client setting has been enabled. We've granted permissions, just user permissions, access to the Power Apps Service API. You also need to do the, the admin consent so that, that you're consenting to using, using this as a scope. And then you create the client secrets. Now you have the client ID, you have the client secret. All you have to now do is do an HTTP post to login.microsoftonline.com slash your tenant and so on. I'll, I'll put the links for the details here in the show notes. And in the body of that HTTP post, you have to pass the client ID, the client secret, the scope, and what sort of a grant you're, you're asking for. And in return, you get the access token. And with this access token, you can pass that in the headers. And with this access token, you can now use the Power Platform API. But before we look at the API, what you can do with this now that we have authentication fixed with Azure AD, Toby, what do you use if you're just testing an API and you're not really sure 
if you're planning on using this in the future, what do you use to do these tests? Like, let, let, let me do a test HTTP post to get an access token. Then I'm fiddling with this a little bit just to see what it's giving back to me before you actually start building something for real. Yeah, that's a good question. And again, something that I think perhaps an episode would be uh, would be worthy for an episode just to take someone in and talk about uh, API testing tools in that sense. For me, I have two things that I come back to. One is Windows Terminal um, on, on Windows 11 that I really like. And the other is Postman. And Postman has been around for such a long time. And I think before Postman, I used something called REST Client. Uh, and then they changed something in their app and became a different type of app model, whatever. I stopped using that and started using Postman because really with Postman, you can save collections, you can save all the, the work you're doing. So you can kind of just stop what you're doing, uh, you know, go home for the day. When you get back in the morning, you can do, just open Postman and open that collection and start executing the request where you kind of left off, which is kind of nice. Um, so I do that. And, and you can also do just ad hoc tests using that. You don't have to set up and save a new collection and stuff like this. So my, my number one recommendation is always Postman. It's a visual tool or a GUI tool, uh, but it's really good. You can parse the results. You can see the, the headers coming back. You can configure the headers you want to send with the requests. Uh, so if you have a bearer token, if you need to, to enter that, bam, done. Super easy. Um, so you can really test all the APIs uh, or any type of API using that. And then, of course, with Windows Terminal, I think it's built in now. I don't think I recall installing it, um, but I'm using curl or curl. I don't know how you pronounce it or how you say it because um, I've only ever typed it. So I use that, which is kind of just raw command line. You know, uh, execute this post or get request to this endpoint using these flags, whatever, done. But I, I do find myself even using Postman a lot because it, it, it's easy for me to track the history. It's easy for me to see the results, uh, work with the results, see them raw, see them in JSON, see them in a tree view, whatever. I get all the data that I need in, inside of Postman. So what about you? What are, what are you using these days? So I, I was an active user of Postman, but that was years ago. And I think last year I, I had a need to test an API, just debug something and and, and, and I went and installed Postman and it, it looks fully different now. It sort of used to be running on top of the browser. You would have like a couple of panes and dialogues and you can just hack away. But now I felt it's, it's sort of like this uh, progressive web application. It spins up a new window and there's like a gazillion buttons you can do. And I, I just gave up because I was in a hurry. I just wanted to get stuff done. So my go-to tool is curl as well. And I think I've been using that so much in the past couple of years that I, I've sort of memorized the, the, the maybe the 10, 15 parameters that I use most frequently on that one, like which HTTP verb and how do you add data and, and, and how do you set the content type and how do you add stuff in the headers. It's really nice. But if you have like a two-week break of not using curl, you simply just forget everything about this. And I hope, always open Google to check. So how did I do this again? So curl for me, definitely. Uh, I think I've, I've tried REST clients. And for Firefox, I think there's something called rested. Uh, and, and I've tried that maybe once as well. But for me to get the Power Platform API working, I needed to debug a little bit because the docs on 
on Microsoft for the API, they are a bit messy right now. And, and in order to get this up and running, I, I did use quite a bit of time in curl to sort of debug to see why is it giving me permission denied and why, why is this and that not working out? But once you sort of figure that out, and I will, I will put the exact links for the samples in the show notes, then you can use whatever for testing, a command line tool, Postman, or if you're already building an integration, use Logic Apps, use Azure Functions, use whatever you use to call an API. Okay, so now we have access to the API, we have the tooling in place. Uh, what you can do with, with, the, uh, with the preview API for now, and I was a little bit disappointed because I, I expected the preview API to be on par with the legacy API, but bring something new to the table. But this is lacking everything the legacy API has, but it brings to the table app management and licensing. That's it. So you can get what app packages do we have installed and you can install app packages. For licensing, you can see billing policy, the ISV contract, which is a special power platform thing, and also the, the, the currency allocation. That's it. So I, I think this is then a, a result of really revamping and re-architecting the entire APIs and scrapping whatever was there. Someone made a decision saying, this is not good enough. We need to get more modern. We need to kind of consolidate with the, the other APIs that we offer from Microsoft. And, uh, and then they perhaps then published this. I've seen this with other services. I've seen it with Azure APIs as well, where they kind of scrapped something that they had and the existing API was fairly elaborate, but it was built on a very legacy or old model of API building. And so they just scrapped it and started over with a new API. And when that came into a private preview and then eventually a public preview, it did not have feature parity or it did not have API parity. It did not have the same things in the API. But over time, you know, all the things that were actively used in the previous APIs kind of made it over, even though the endpoints might be different and might be different kind of information that you have to pass in the headers and things like that. Uh, and the results, you know, might look different when you get it back, but the data that you get back is the same. Uh, so hopefully that's something that they will figure out here as well, of course, that even now you have these two things, like you mentioned, app management and licensing. And in the future, maybe they'll add some of the things that exist in the legacy API. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping the app management itself is useful, but perhaps not as often used I'm, I'm hoping they will expand this with, with give me statistics, give me the environment details. What security roles do I have? What's happening in Dataverse? What do we have with flows? What do we have with Power Apps? So sort of a bit, bit of stuff around governance and reporting, but also perhaps for configuring things so that I could automate a lot of the things you usually do manually in Power Platform. Okay, so a quick recap. We've done the Azure app registration that created the service principle for us. We granted the permissions. Now we have the scope, we have the client ID, we have the client secret. And once we have this, we call with an HTTP post, we, we, we call uh, Azure AD, we get the access token. And with this access token, we can call api.powerplatform.com slash whatever you want to do with this and you have app management and licensing capabilities. So now, Toby, that you know 
what we have, what we can use, what tooling we can use. Do, do you come up with any, any use cases or scenarios how you would perhaps, if again, you're a consultant and a customer approaches you and says, we want X, how do you do it? And then you would go, well, actually I could use the our platform preview API for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's a couple of use cases that I see. Um, one is uh, something that I also do a lot or used to do a lot for uh, for Azure. We usually hit limits in Azure um, and not limits in the service itself, but like capacity limits because our quota, we exceeded our quotas. So we had to file a request for, for new quotas. And uh, I think there's something similar you can do with the power platforms. So, Maybe one thing would be to get some kind of capacity or quota report saying, um, you know, th- this is the current state that you're in. So you can kind of see how much uh, data you consume. Because I think for, for billing with the power platform, you're also billed, you know, by the capacitor or how much you consume. So that might be interesting to look into the numbers and then automate that to so get a fresh report. I think there's also in the docs, I think they have a tutorial actually for creating a daily capacitor report, which I think does something like that. And, th- and that's pretty nice. And I, I think that's about when the customer is, is trying to get a handle on their capacity consumption. And then they can see, you know, how are things allocated? You know, what's the total tenant capacity? Um, can we split this down by department? Uh, and then you can, of course, do your internal cost, cost management that you need by department or by whatever you know, works for your company. So yeah, there, that would probably be one, especially since licensing and billing and currency uh, allocation and stuff like this is part of the licensing API. I would probably do that. Of course, the other thing that comes to mind is governance, right? I, I spent the last seven years working with a company where we built a governance tool for Microsoft 365. So governance comes to mind where one of the things that we keep seeing, you know, out in the field is organizations having no control of what they have in Microsoft 365, right? They have a tenant and they have a lot of things. They have power apps, they have flows, you know, and, and they just run wild. People create them right and left. Uh, they have AD apps, they have client IDs and secrets, and they have certificates and they have this and they have that. You know, things are just growing and proliferating and there's nobody really governing that. That's something that I see with the Power Platform as well. And we saw this in the Microsoft 365 space a lot, that these things proliferate a lot. They create and get created by end users a lot and by power users a lot. And then all of a sudden, you have a process or something in your company that is critical to to some of your processes, but you forgot who created it, or there's nobody with the knowledge of how it was created, or you don't even know where it's running or where it's coming from. Because every time you do something, something automatically changes that thing in a list or you know in a in a GitHub repo or whatever it is, because someone created a uh, a power app or or a flow or something to to automate it. So these are things that I see happening a lot. So if I had to pick two things that comes to mind, first is cost management and and getting insights into how you use the capacity that you have been allocated. And, you know, in, in your total tenant and then split that down in whatever way you can. So like the, we'll put the link in the show notes. I think there's this tutorial that I mentioned where they build a, like a daily capacity report thing, uh, which can be interesting. 
And then, of course, the other thing that comes to mind is governance, something that is close to me because I've worked a lot with that. I think that's important for many organizations to really embrace. Otherwise, things will just run wild and you will have no control of that. Um, using this API, maybe we can get some insights because then you can get the different app packages. You can kind of get the environment app packages and can see the install status of things. Um, maybe there's a good way here where you can get get some insights and really kind of start governing the uh, the entire power platform. I'm not sure the API is fully there yet, but at least those are the two things I would start looking at. As for today, I don't have the use case for this, but I know customers have this use case working with customers in the field. This is something I hear a lot. There's the uh, the power platform CLI tooling, and, and that's super handy for doing a lot of things. I haven't checked, but I think it's using the legacy API perhaps. So eventually when the preview API is more capable, I'm definitely seeing seeing the benefit for governance and, and, and the billing tooling, as you mentioned. Perhaps also for just doing raw reporting, like what apps do we have? What services should, should we do something? Are these configured based on, on the best practices? Alrighty, I, I think we've exhausted the Power Platform API and how to configure and get access to that. Make sure to check the show notes because we'll, we'll definitely link to a couple of additional resources that will be helpful if you want to get this up and running. Uh, the last bit, the unexpected question. And, and Toby, I have a great question for you. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, okay, let's go. When you work in IT and have tech issues, you typically resolve them yourself. You, you do your work at the office and then you spend the evening fixing the tech issues yourself. But what do you think for dentists and hairdressers? What do they do in similar situations? Not that they have tech issues, but they have bad hair day or, or, or dental issues, what do they do? <laughs> yeah, good question. I know for a fact from several hairdressers that I know, uh, I know for a fact that they use their colleagues, right? Um, you don't go to a mirror and try to fix something yourself unless it's something super simple. But like if you have a bad hair day or it's something that needs to be fixed, like if we have a tech issue, it's not just another day of starting the computer. Something went wrong, we need to fix it. Same thing here, right? Uh, you messed something with your hair, you you messed up something, your colleague will fix it because it's really difficult to do that in, in your own neck because you cannot see there. Uh, same with a dentist. I do have um, a friend or an acquaintance who is a dentist and they at a party at one point explained, you know, joked a little bit, but I think there's some truth to this. Whenever they have issues, uh, you know, during their breaks, Sometimes they take a little bit longer break and they look into each other's mouths and fix whatever needs to be fixed, <laughs> which is why they always have this perfect smile when you come to the dentist. <laughs> All <righty. laughs> that that makes perfect sense. I'm I'm imagining uh, because because the, the the dentist's office that I use they they have like four or five different rooms and they're interconnected with this with this sort of with corridor. Yeah. yeah. So, so I'm sort of thinking that that they they have a cancellation or they have a break. They just go, "Hey, do you have 15 minutes? Can can you can you take a look at this and per, 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 perhaps um, use some some funny stuff to 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 get this fixed fast for me? It, it will be so awesome." Yeah. So I, I I think that would be my 
that's how I visualize it as well. So okay, yeah. okay, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely buy this idea for sure. But I still think that if I have issues in IT, I, I just resolve them myself. And and regardless of how many hours it takes, it's sort of a matter of pride as well that I need to get this <laughs> resolved. I cannot ask for help. Otherwise, it would mean that I'm not capable of working in tech. And I'm I'm also now in a in a place in a happy place. I might add where. Back in the day, it used to be that whenever tech issues happened, you call Toby, right? Relatives, yeah. friends, whatever, growing up, every time something happened with a computer or whatever type of device, call Tobias. He will fix it. He'll take a look. I'm now in a happy place where nobody gives me a call because they know I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, you know, I, I had to turn it around when you have so many people asking you every day, every week, every month, you know, can you come over? Can you fix this? Can I bring my laptop? Can I do this? then you have to spend several hours troubleshooting. You don't, like, it's a great question, this actually, that you just asked, because what happens, my electricity in my house needs a renovation and, and we need to fix that. It's not like I call my electrician friend because I have several of those. It's not like I can call them and say, hey, can you just spend five hours fixing this? I mean, you do this every day, so you know it. I can I can take care of your laptop if you want, you know, because... That's how it used to be. Oh, tech issues. It's a laptop. It's a computer thing. Oh, ask the geek. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they'll take a look. But when it comes to actual professions or other professions where you're like doing something more tangible, because to a lot of my friends growing up, they didn't understand that I actually worked at the computer with software. I don't care about hardware. I don't know how to build a computer. I don't care if the screen is, is not turning on. I don't care. Get a new screen. I have no idea, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I, I think that's the perfect question and, and just turn that around and ask your electrician friend, Hey, can I, can you take a look here? I need to rewire my entire house. Well, I need to do this. They're not going to do that because they work full-time doing this and they have to earn their salary by doing that. When they're, when they have their free time, they're not going to do it. Same with me. So we fix our tech issues ourselves. I think like my brother and, and a, lot of, a lot of my friends, they're electricians, to, to make an example, and they fix their own electricity, right? They have an issue, they fix it. But for the professions like dentists and hairdressers, where it's about fixing something on yourself, then I think you have to pull in your collaboration skills and get one of your colleagues to come in and, and poke around. Makes, makes perfect sense. Uh, uh, just before we wrap up, I, I had a friend call me and, and he had... Uh, a tech issue, issue for his business. And he asked, can I, can I take a look? And I said, sure, buy me a breakfast and, and we'll, we'll meet at eight o'clock at your office and I will spend one hour on that. So we got that fixed in one hour. Then we went for breakfast and my friend said, just send me an invoice. I'm, I'm happy to pay whatever you need. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm not, not really sending an invoice for one hour, even though it was a tricky problem. But then I mentally also make a note that whenever I need his specialty, I know I can call him and ask for an hour and I'm not getting an invoice for that. But obviously if you're doing that a lot, suddenly you have like 15 hours spent on something and you're not really sure if you're getting the payback back anymore. Alrighty. This was fun talking about Power Platform API as ready service principles and also tech issues as well. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to check the show notes and, and we'll cook something fun up for next week as well. All right. See you then.